Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 34. We will get there. We won't be there right away, but we will be meditating on Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 this morning. As a church, we could recognize countless special Sundays. I could speak on a different topic related to those special Sundays. Every Sunday of the year, we could do that. But my heart as one of your elders, as a pastor, as a shepherd, is for us as a, to, to bring to light for us as a church those things that are really important but that are often neglected. Things that are of eternal significance but that we just forget about for some reason. And so as a church, we have remembered the plight of orphans with Orphan Sunday. We have spent time remembering our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And so this morning, in that vein, we remember the plight of the unborn on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. We speak about the evil of abortion and our responsibility to reflect God's heart and character on this issue. And I don't say that I would take on this topic with any joy, but I am glad. I'm glad that we're going to talk about it glad that we're not um, remaining silent, and I pray that our time reflecting on God's Word would change our hearts and would even serve to change the world in which we live. And I pray that we would grow in this conversation. I'll admit that I'm learning what to say, what not to say, how to approach this topic well. This is my first Sanctity of Human Life Sunday sermon, but I want us to grow in this conversation together, that we would not hide from it because it's difficult but that we would think hard on it and pray, and that we would be motivated to action. So I want to begin simply by saying why we as a church should engage our minds and our hearts around Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, the reasons that we as a church should feel compelled to recognize this, and I think the reason is rooted in some biblical presuppositions. So let me bring these out before we get into our text. The first one being that all people, from the moment of conception, are created in the image of God and are valuable. I think that's something to hold true, isn't it? All people from the moment of conception are created in the image of God and are valuable. In the account of the creation in Genesis chapter 1, all the world is created, and then in the creation of human beings, something unique happens. There's a divine council of sorts amongst the Trinity, and it is said that man is created in God's image. And then in Genesis chapter 2, it says that, that God himself breathes into man the breath of life. And man is created in God's image. And as much as that image is, is distorted and, and marred in the fall of Genesis 3, we see that God's image continues in all human beings from Adam and Eve onward. In fact, in Genesis 9-6, the continuing presence of God's image in human beings is cited as the reason why murder is wrong. Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for because God made man in his own image. That's the reason given for why murder is sin. So the value of a person is not tied up in what they do or do not do, what they can or cannot offer to society, but in the fact that they are made in the image of God. Every person, regardless of gender or ethnicity or economic standing, is created in God's image. Beyond that, from the moment of conception, human beings are created in the image of their creator. That's regardless of size, whether small or large. It's regardless of their level of development, whether 
they are immature or mature. It's regardless of their environment, whether they are inside or outside of the womb, and it's regardless of their degree of dependency, whether they are attached to an umbilical cord, a respirator, or nothing at all. All human beings are created in God's image and valuable. The second thing that we could say, we alluded to in Genesis 9-6, and it's this, that murder is wrong because it takes the life of a person created in the image of God. That's the reason murder is wrong. To intentionally or unlawfully kill a human being is murder. We would contend that there are times when the killing of another human being may be justified, whether it be in self-defense or um, to save some rather than lose all. But we would take none of these situations lightly, would we? But the taking of a human being is not something that we do quickly, even if the circumstances would deem that necessary. But murder is never justified. Because it acts either in anger or selfishness or, or pride. It kills another human being to see those desires realized. And in killing another human being, for those reasons, the life of a person created in the image of God has been taken. So the killing of another human being is an affront to the Creator. It's an attack on God himself. So we believe that all people from the moment of conception are created in the image of God and are valuable, and that murder is wrong because it takes the life of a human being created in God's image. So then, specifically and boldly, we would say that abortion is the murder of a human being created in the image of God. Abortion is the murder of a human being created in the image of God. The reason that Sanctity of Human Life Sunday emphasizes the plight of the unborn rather than just all human beings and the reality of of murder in the world is because the murder of born human beings is recognized as wrong. It's recognized as wrong by our government. It's recognized as wrong by the vast majority of hum human beings. But the murder of pre-born human beings is seen by many as a right that should be protected, seen as something that's been approved. It's been approved by our government for the past 40 years since the passing of Roe versus Wade. That's why Sanctity of Human Life Sunday falls, the Sunday it does, to commemorate the passing of Roe versus Wade in the Supreme Court. And since that time, 50 million children have been legally murdered in our country. Abortion is unique. It's governmentally approved and often societally approved murder. So how can we not feel compelled to speak? It's not a political issue. It's a moral issue. It's attack on God himself. And so we're compelled to speak out. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this, that we are compelled to speak out because this is the greatest moral issue of our day. So here's why. All people from the moment of conception are created in the image of God and are valuable. Murder is wrong because it takes the life person created the image of God, and abortion is the murder of a human being created in the image of God. So let me add one more reason why why we should do this, and, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. We should think well on this and speak out on this, because we are created in the image of God. Because we are created in the image of God. Not only are the children killed by abortion created in the image of God, but we have been created in the image of God. And being made in the image of God means, it means many things, but one baseline thing that it means is that we are to image God. We are to reflect Him. The case for doing so becomes even greater when we think about the fact that those of us who have placed our faith in Christ have been adopted 
as his children. God is now our Father, and we are to represent him. So not only are we created in God's image, but we are his children. And so being made in the image of God and called as his children, we must respond to the evil of abortion as God does. We must image him. We must show him to a watching world in the way that we talk and respond to the issue. Remember, and we read this this week, if you're reading along with us, in Genesis 17, Abraham was told to walk before the Lord and be blameless. To walk before the Lord, to represent who God is to the world that surrounded him. And so too are we to show the character of our Father to those that are around us. So, what is the image of God? What is the, the picture of God that we are to reflect just in general, and then specifically, what what is the picture of God that we are that we should see that people should see in us as His followers in the midst of a world that approves and encourages abortion on demand for any reason? What should we look like, and in so looking, image God, show forth who God is? And I think to answer that question, we go to Exodus Exodus thirty four verses six and seven. When the Israelites, you remember, when they were brought out of Egypt through the powerful and redeeming hand of God, they arrived later at Mount. Sinai, and Moses went up on the mountain, was given the law by God, and as he was on the mountain, you remember the children of Israel formed a golden calf. And as Moses is on the mountain, God says, Moses, go down, because the people are sinning greatly, and Moses comes down off the mountain, and deals with the issue, and God says that because of their sin, he's going to destroy all the Israelites and start over with Moses. Moses intercedes, he seeks the face of God, and God relents of the anger. And in that moment, Moses says, asks if he could see God's face. And God says, no one can see my face and live, but I will allow all my goodness to pass before me. And so God reveals who he is to Moses. And as he does that, he reveals his name to Moses here in Genesis 34. He reveals the core of his character. Read with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 of Exodus chapter 34. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faith keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children, and the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. What is the nature of the God that we reflect? What should the world around us see about the God who is in us? as his image bearers. I mean, the first thing that we see is they should see that God is the life giver. 
God is the life giver. He says here twice, the Lord, the Lord. It's the name Yahweh. I am that I am. It's the name that communicates to God as eternally existent. He has never been created. There has never been a time when God was not. And in that way, God is certainly not like us. Of course, for each of us, there was a time when we were not. There was a time when we did not exist. But then there was a moment when the life-giving God ordained that we would come into existence. We were dependent on our mother, but ultimately dependent on God. And in that moment, as we read in Psalm 139, we were knit together in our mother's womb as an image-bearing individual created for the glory of God. We were created, and we were created by the hand of God, the life giver. We were created for God. We were made for His glory, not for our own. But in a world that emphasizes human ingenuity and individuality and self-actualization and autonomy and, and choice and all these things, we should reflect the truth that we exist only, the only reason we exist is because of the divine pleasure and life-giving power of God. We should live our lives dependent on God. We should live lives that seek not to make a name for ourselves, but that would seek to lift up the name of God alone. People should see in us as we reflect God's image. They should see people who have traded a dependence on a human mother for dependence on God alone. We would abide in Him. As people seek for ultimate meaning, I pray that we would reflect the truth that, that God, is, God is the Lord. He is Yahweh, is the eternally existent one for whom all things were made, through whom all things were made for his glory alone. And they would call people to find life by recognizing that God is the one who made them. And that God continues to give them life. So the first thing that we reflect is that God is the life giver. Second, we reflect this. God is a God of mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, and forgiveness. God is a God of mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, and forgiveness. We see that right there in verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You know, the debate between those who support choice and reproductive rights and those who support life is a heated one, isn't it? And it should be. It's it's one that is life and death, and it's one where one side is vilified and demonized by the other and then vice versa. But the heart of God here that is reflected is one that is filled with mercy and grace and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness. I'm always struck by that, that when God has this moment to reveal who he is, he says, I am the life giver, and then the first things that come out of his mouth, I'm, I'm so full of mercy. I'm so loving. I'm so patient and gracious and kind and faithful and forgiving. This is the heart of who I am. That's who he reveals himself to Moses and to all Israel to be. And so as we think about reflecting God's God's heart, especially on this issue, we should remember that God's heart is filled with mercy and grace and love and faithfulness, first of all, and most obviously towards the unborn, towards those that he has made in his image. And I'm sure that his 
heart breaks as much as ours at their killing, and so too should ours break if we are to image God himself. This is where we have to begin, with a deep love for all children that weeps at their killing in the name of choice and convenience. And beyond simply the unborn, God's heart is full of mercy and grace and love and faithfulness towards the unwanted, because that's often who the unborn are, is they are the unwanted. It's towards those who suffer from mental or physical handicaps. We see them as created in God's image. They are image bearers towards orphans, who no one really seems to want, but who we see as image bearers of God. Towards boys and girls. It's said that in our day and age, some of the most deadly words that can be spoken are, it's a I tried to cry before I did this, so I wouldn't. But gender selection abortion is a reality. But God is full of mercy. He's merciful to all. He's filled with mercy and grace, patience and love. Not only for the unborn and the unwanted, but for those who have an abortion. He doesn't come to women who have an abortion with a rod of anger. He comes with mercy. He, he loves those who find themselves in a lonely place, who are poor, who are cast off. We don't know what to do. People who are pressured from others, who are confused. You know, this week we we read the story of Hagar again with Abram and Sarah. And I was remember when we went through Genesis. I was so struck by that. You remember that story, right? Um, Hagar is called by Abraham and Sarai to have a child by Abram. She's Sarai's maid servant and she gets pregnant and Sarai in her jealousy and anger drives Hagar away. You see this pregnant woman cast off alone in the middle of the desert. What does God do? He comes to her and says, I see you, Hagar. I hear you. I think this is our heart towards women in distress. Do we come to them as God comes to Hagar? Or do we drive them? Drive them away like Sarai did. Do we recognize that they have been deceived by the world, the flesh, and the devil? Or do we simply shake our heads in self-righteousness? Do we have mercy and grace and love towards them? Do we have mercy and grace and love for some people? That's hard for me to have mercy and grace towards towards the men who often create the situation, and then when the decision has to be made, they're nowhere to be found. We have mercy on them. We have mercy on men who stick around and say, if you don't do this, I'm out of here. We would do well to remember Saul. Saul was a man who was dead set on murdering God's children because he thought that's what was right. But what does God do? He meets Saul where he's at. He shows him mercy. He gives him, adopts him as a son. God shows mercy and grace and love to mothers who have had an abortion, 
fathers who have encouraged it, and parents who have paid for it, and friends who have advised it, and doctors who have performed it, and politicians who have approved it, and judges who have upheld it, and if God shows them mercy and grace and love and has his image bearers and his children, so should we. I think the most beautiful thing that God shows, though, is it's right here. He forgives. He says he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. If you had, if you didn't know that he forgave iniquity, he don't, doesn't just forgive iniquity, he also forgives transgression. And he doesn't just forgive iniquity and transgression, he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. I think that covers everything. We've been meditating in Luke 178 that the fact that the message of salvation that John the Baptist was to announce was that Jesus the Messiah was coming to visit and to redeem his people, to show tender mercy. And the way he was going to do it was how? By forgiving them of their sins. The greatest need that we all have is to be forgiven of our sins against the holy God who made us. And God does not place abortion as the unforgivable sin, but rather he calls all people to come to Jesus and to find forgiveness. He calls all people to come and freely drink from the waters of salvation. Because God doesn't forgive us because of who we are or what we can do or what we have or what we have not done. Rather, he forgives us of our sins when we admit the wrong that we have done, when we confess our sins, when we repent, when we turn from when we believe in Jesus as the God-man who lived the sinless life so that we might have his righteousness, who died a horrible death so that we would not have to. Because of his life and death and resurrection, he says to all people everywhere, he says, come to me and I will forgive you though your sins look like a scarlet stain. I'll make them look right. And I, I would just say, I don't know the story of everyone here so feel compelled to say that in Christ there is forgiveness of sins. And if you have not received that forgiveness, he offers it freely to you. And if you have received that in salvation, then know that he has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, and he promises to remember them no more. So as we speak and live, we image God as the giver of life. We image God as, as the one who is full of mercy grace and patience and love and faithfulness and most importantly forgiveness but the text is also very clear isn't it it's clear that God is a God of justice and righteousness God is a God God is a God of justice and righteousness it says there at the end of verse 7 forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means leave the guilty, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children, the third and the fourth generation. God is loving and merciful and gracious, but in his righteousness and his holiness, he demands that justice be done. He is the judge of all the earth, and he must do what is right. So as we reflect him, we have to speak about coming judgment. But to speak of coming justice. Sin is not without consequence. And as patient and merciful as our God is, he is also just and righteous. He is not a God who will ignore unrighteousness and rebellion by his creations forever. We can think of Abraham. You think of Abraham who did not overtake the land of Canaan immediately. Why? Because the Amorites were in the land and God said their iniquity is not yet 
full. It's not ready for judgment yet, and so they will exist in the land. I will continue to show mercy to them and give them opportunity for repentance. Remember, this is the, the Amorites, a people who, among other iniquities, practiced child sacrifice to their gods. But there was a day when God's wrath came on the Amorites, when Joshua and the army of God's people came into the land, and they destroyed all of those that had rebelled against God, their maker, for so many years. They had been given years and years and years of God's patience, waiting for them to repent. But instead they stored up more and more wrath for themselves. And there's a day coming. There's a day coming when Jesus will return to the earth. We could say that the way that he came was almost like a, a whisper, but he's going to come with a shout, with a, with a trumpet from the second coming. And he is going to bring justice and righteousness to the earth. He will punish the wicked. And he will save those who were wicked but have been redeemed by Jesus. He will come to separate the sheep and the goats. He'll separate the wheat from the chaff. He will separate his children and those that he does not know. We can and we should help all people realize that God is patient. That he's not willing that anyone would die in their sins, but that all would come to repentance. But we also need to proclaim that his patience does not last forever. And as we speak of, of coming judgment, we don't remain silent in our world, but we also, we don't just speak of coming judgment, but we seek present justice. We seek present justice in this day. This is not that, that we enact justice in the way that God does. God is clear. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We are not called to model the wrath of God through some kind of physical force. But we can and we should use all the means necessary to seek justice in our world and to seek justice for the unborn. We should pray. We should pray for legislation to be passed. We should pray for things like Roe versus Wade to be repealed. It seems like that's impossible. Haven't we learned that nothing is impossible with God? We should protest, we should speak out, we should let our voices be heard, we should do what God calls us to do. But we should do all of this remembering that only when Christ returns will a perfect kingdom be set up. We should never have any illusions that America is the kingdom of God on earth and therefore someday everything will be right. No. We do what we can, but we also recognize that not everything will be right until Jesus comes back, but then everything will. God is a God of justice and righteousness. We need to speak of coming justice. We also need to seek present justice. So again, we're, we're to reflect this clear image of who God is. Who is God? What's he supposed to look like in us? We should show that he is the life giver. Giver of all life. That he is full of mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, and forgiveness, that he is righteous and just, that he desires justice on the earth, and he will bring justice fully and finally one day. And as we think about this, just as we reflect all of these attributes, what are we ultimately reflecting? We're reflecting the gospel. We're reflecting the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, which is the only hope for the world. We tell the world, we say, Jesus is a life giver. 
He gives life to all. He calls all to find their life in making him great. But then we say, but, but our sin, we've rebelled against him. We've, we've chosen death. But because God, this is who our God is. He is he's full of mercy and grace, patience, kindness, forgiveness, faithfulness. Because of all that, he sent his son Jesus to offer forgiveness of sins. And in offering forgiveness of sins, God doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. He doesn't say, well, we'll just forget about that. No, he is just and he is righteous and he deals with sin the way that it needs to be dealt with. And the punishment for sin is death. But instead of his wrath being poured on us, his wrath is poured out on us. Jesus on the cross drinks the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs so that by repentance and faith, you and I do not have to but instead we are adopted as children. We're given everlasting life. This is how we show the world who God is, by proclaiming what the gospel is. But especially we need to do this in a culturally, the culture that, that willfully destroys God's image bearers. So we proclaim. We proclaim who God is through words, through actions, through our entire lives. We proclaim that our God is life-giving God, that he gives our physical life and he gives eternal life. We proclaim that our God is full of mercy and grace and patience and love faithfulness and forgiveness. And that he is a God who in his righteousness and his justice will one day make all things right. This is who our God is. He's the answer to the question people have. This is who we model. This is who we image. This is who we show forth. Pray that the world would see us, see God in us as we speak the truth of the gospel, as we live it out. As we show it in compassion for the unborn, for the unwanted, as we show it in compassion for the confused, for the broken, for the angry, for the argumentative, for those that are deceived and dead in their sins. We show it to all, to the unborn, unwanted, confused, broken, angry, argumentative, deceived, and dead in sins. Why? Because that's who we were. Until God showed himself to us. And it's only by grace. May we image him well in the world that we live.